Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 57 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Short Selling Activist. And I'm joined here by my buoyant co-host, former market maker, 20 years and current day retail trader, a man hated by many, loved by few, and feared by all, a man who single-handedly held the stock over 80 RSI for 180 days straight, the man who taught you how to think like a villain, a.k.a. J.J. Luther. J.J., how's it going? Good, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. And our guest today is a systematic trader who was featured in the Unknown Market Wizards, latest book of a legendary series of trading books, a man whose annual compounded return during the past 20 years was 20%, and that's more than triple the 5.7% return of the S&P during that period, a man who's any who's accomplished violinist and programmer. I'm, of course, talking about Marston Parker. Marston, how's it going, man? Hey, good. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's uh, my second podcast of my entire life. Uh, <laughs> All right. Excellent. I'm looking well, forward to it. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you joining us. I, uh, I wanted to start off asking you, uh, in the book, uh, you brought up a, a point where you met Jim Simons or Jim Simons was involved uh, with uh, merger negotiations. He was an investor in the company um, that, that I guess bought you guys out or in for exchange for some stock. And what I found funny, cause we talked to the author of the book, uh, the man who solved the market. Mm-hmm. And the one thing he brought up was how, like, in order for him to interview Jim Simons, he had to been able to smoke and that Jim Simons was smoking, ashing in coffee mugs. You brought up the same thing that, that for you guys, Jim Simons had to be able to smoke or like, I guess, uh, uh so I guess when you're rich, you can just do whatever you want, huh? Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, I don't know if he still is, but he was a chain smoker. Uh, but yeah, it, as is pointed out in that book, which is an excellent book, uh, the um, in the late '80s and early '90s, his main thing was was venture capital. While he was kind of transitioning into, uh, you know, the Medallion Fund and where where they ended up now. Um, yeah, and um, I happened to. Uh, start a, a little consulting company with three colleagues, and then we we were subcontractors to this one of the companies Simon had invested in, Segway Software, and uh, on on a project of porting Lotus One Two Three to Unix, which I think never really went anywhere. But uh, that was in 1991, and um, we were the, the QA department, the software testing department, uh, and we built some tools to help with that job, which, um, which ended up seeming like a good product idea in themselves. So Segway decided to pivot, buy us out, you know, and um, merge with them. Um, so, so yeah, Jim Simons was the chairman. I mean, I think he probably came up, th- this was all in, in the Boston area, which is where I live. And I, he probably came up from Long Island, maybe, I don't know, two to four times a year at most, but, uh, you know, and would be in our office for a day. Generally, it was when there was a board meeting he was the chairman of the board um and yeah and i think the 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 town where our offices were it probably just or maybe it was even statewide that was right around the time that smoking was was starting to be illegal indoors more or less uh which thanks <laughs> to just it still is uh but but yeah he you know if jim was in the building he he smoked the entire time and we just kind of all accepted that fact <laughs> I just, I just thought it was funny because the, because the author, I mean, it had been over a year ago we talked to him, JJ, and like he yeah. made a point of emphasizing that. And then when I came across that in your book, and you were like, oh no, we had a strict no policy, no smoking policy. <laughs> like, this guy just does whatever he's want. I guess when you you yeah. get a certain net worth, you can get away with whatever. We conform the rules. Yeah, yeah. I find a lot of math guys always smoke. I don't know what it is. Like stressful, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's the whole ethos of, you know, wanting to sit around in a coffee shop and smoke and talk about math for eight hours in a row or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, the other the other interesting little story from that time is when, um, you know, we, we were in the in the software testing business. And I guess in, in the early days when they were putting the infrastructure for Medallion in place, um, they were running into some bugs and, and he was getting pissed at his programmers. Uh, and so he, he flew down our head of QA from um, 
from our company to Satalkit and, and had had him uh, you know lecture all of their programmers on the right the right way to test software and uh, I guess it helped because they ended up making a lot of money with that software. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're, uh, Marcy, you're, you're a quantitative guy. Simon's uh, legendary quant. One of my personal favorites, uh, Ed Thorpe. When you were first learning um, how to trade, was or is there a trader that you like looked up towards or gravitated towards? Um, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I read the first Market Withers book. Um, I think that the very first trader trading book that I ever read was. Um, Trading for a Living by, um, uh, what's his name, Alexander Elder, um, which, uh, you know, that, that was not really a quant approach, but somewhat, I wasn't aware of Ed Thorpe till much more recently. Um, I think Ed Sakota jumped out at me from the original Market Wizards book as, as a, a kind of a systematic attitude, but it was really more like, I didn't think of myself as a trader. I had some money to invest and I didn't like the idea of buy and hold because it was 1996 and, you know, Alan Greenspan was saying there's irrational exuberance. And so uh, I, I kind of wanted a, something shorter term. Um, and and I, I would read things on the internet. So, and I ended up uh, following this guy named Gary B. Smith who was writing for the street.com because yeah. he, he wrote about his own trading method and uh, which was mostly systematic. It was actually semi-discretionary entries and completely systematic exits. Um, and then I ended up partnering with him and, and trading that method for a year and then uh, kind of morphed it into a fully systematic method and more or less traded a variation of that for, for about 15 years. Uh, you know, and there, for those 15 years, which was 1998 until uh, 20. 2012 through 2012, I had no losing years, and I actually averaged 27% a year, wow. and I my worst drawdown was 20%. So, that, so I had very good stats. Uh, but then the um, and that that was basically a short-term trend following, kind of like a swing time frame uh, trend following type strategy, uh, or not trend following, but yeah, like I was buying breakouts and putting a profit target and a and a stop basically and, and shorting breakdowns. It was I was always long short. Uh, yeah, more than slightly more than half my money that I made during those years was from the short side. Mm, you know, and and they, I always liked that to have both sides so that one would one would do well when the other wasn't. Um, right, mm. right, right. And I, I definitely I plan on asking you a little bit more about that because uh, some of the, uh, I guess, conclusions or things you found out about uh, kind of trying to hedge the strategies, I thought was kind of interesting. And just a reminder to the listeners, if you guys would like to trade alongside JJ, myself, and supportive community of traders, come join us at microefutures.com. Marcin, uh, you're a violinist. I am not educated on the topic, but I've heard people say that uh, you use different sides of your brain, I guess, for like arts and music, and then another for math and quantitative topics, yet you excel on a high level at both. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I'm, I'm really not a real quant. Uh, actually, I've never taken calculus. I didn't do any math in college. Uh, I don't know, don't know much math. I mean, I'm I think I got a pretty high score on the math SAT, and then, so I have some aptitude for it. But I've never really studied it okay. to to a you know high level. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think people say math and music tend to be correlated. People tend to be good at both of those. So maybe there's something there. Um, okay. There's uh, I, I I'm pretty good at programming and coding and. Um, I think that uses both sides of the brain in some ways. Okay, uh, so, so, so it's like pro programming considered a different realm from uh, like quantitate, yeah, that's a different. I think so, yeah. You know, yeah. In, the, in the early days of computers, a lot of the best programmers were English majors. Okay, it's, interesting. You know, there's, cause it's, it's logic really. It's, it's, being a, it, it's being able to think schematically and uh, you know, it's like thinking flowcharts. Right. Uh, it's it's more like process oriented logical thinking as opposed to pure math. You know, like the kind of things Jim Simons can do is you know visualizing uh, 
abstract geometry in 17 dimensions or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what that is. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. No, and, and think about all the formula, complex formulas. For, uh, right, right. No, that make, that makes sense. I, I think, yeah, I think I've probably been looking at it the wrong way. I, I think- But like, like, I can do Rubik's cube. I don't know what, what part of the brain that is. Oh, that's so, cool. That's sort of both in a way. I can juggle. <laughs> Now, now let me hop in here just really quick. I'm a yeah. failed violinist, okay? Really? My, my mother forced me to practice. Well, to I am too, actually, for that matter, but yeah. <laughs> From five years old to 10 years old, she forced me to take violin. And my poor dog, we had this Newfoundland dog, and every time I practiced <laughs> the violin, that poor animal would just howl because I was so horrible on it. Well, who's your favorite violinist? Oh, that's hard to say, um, but... I mean, the, the, the younger generation, I like uh, Hilary Hahn. I like okay. Augustine Hederlich. He's really great. Um, he had a great series of videos during the pandemic. You know, some of, some of the younger ones really kind of, uh, that were tech savvy enough, hopped right on and started making recordings from their apartments or houses. And, and he has cool. a whole great series. In fact, in fact, he managed to record the entire Bach uh, sonatas and partitas and is going to release them in April, I think. Oh, cool. uh, the time. But, and then from the older ones, uh, yeah, David Oistrock, I would say, is probably right up there. Um, also, Grumio, Arthur Grumio. Okay. His elegance. And... Okay. I was, I was expecting a Heifetz, but I was just well, curious. Yeah, yeah, I you mean, know, Heifetz is the famous one. And yeah, uh, it's, there's certainly nothing wrong with Heifetz. <laughs> but Hilary Hahn is amazing. I, I saw her yeah. uh, on YouTube with the Sibelius, and it was just absolutely, you know, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, if you're if you're a fan of the Sibelius Concerto, which I am, I've even performed it actually. Um, wow, really? Can, well, quote unquote performed. I I played the solo part in a rehearsal with my orchestra about six times uh, to help them prepare for the real soloist. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that was fun. Um, wow. I'm an amateur. Yeah. Oh, but Jay, but, he went to he went to school for for music. Yeah, wow, I did. I go. yeah. got so a degree. Yeah, he's serious. Yeah, yeah. He's got a degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, sorry, Jay, did you want to jump in again? I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I just had to get the violin question out of the way. <laughs> no, definitely. Awesome. When, uh, Marcel, when we spoke with Jack, he prefaced um, it before, you know, in our interview, and then also before your interview in the book, that the best returns that he's seen have been done by discretionary traders. So he's kind of even a, a little reluctant to include you, but because of your longevity, uh, that was the deciding factor. I'm just curious, so what are your thoughts or a general take on the topic of being systematic versus discretionary? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting question that comes up a lot is <clears throat> why do the best discretionary traders seem to do better? Uh, and, and certainly in, in um, 2020. I mean, I know of some discretionary traders that, that had, you know, fantastic returns. Um, it's it's hard to pin it down, but I mean, I basically I think I think discretionary traders develop a kind of um, kind of intuition of of what other people are doing in the market, mm -hmm. and and know how to um, you know basically know when not to put a position on, know when to put a position on based on what it's about to do, and it. it you have, you know, I think that develops over time as you sit there in front of the, the, the screen every day and watch things happen. Um, I feel like, um, you know, it's like anything else. You have to do, you have to practice it and do it repeatedly, and then you build up the skill. Um, I, you know, I kind of tried to do that to some extent when I first started out, and just just didn't like it. I didn't do well at it. It didn't suit me. I, I want to, I don't like making decisions in real time. I'd rather um, be able to do some research. I mean, of course, there are slower time frame discretionary methods as well. Yeah. But, I, but uh, as far as, from, from what I've seen, the, the best discretionary traders I've read about or known um, are, you know, they really can pinpoint their entries to a moment in time when, when it's low risk, you know, when you can, mm. you, you can use a tighter stop and have it be fairly sure it won't be hit. I mean, and I, I, and whereas a systematic trader, you know, you're, you're, you're running these back to, you're, you're writing rules and back testing them. And you're, you're basically looking for what's worked best on average, but for any given trade, your entry is probably going to be fairly sloppy. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, I'm calculating limit prices for a bunch of symbols and placing placing those orders before the market opens. I have no idea how that price is going to be relative to the intraday action that ensues. Oh, interesting. Um, so, right. Yeah, this is fascinating because I'm a completely discretionary guy because I used to make markets and create yeah. buying and people would always say, you know, do you candlestick charts? And I'm like, I, I don't read candles. I make them, you know, I, um, I, so, <laughs> uh, but this is amazing because I always say, because we have all these levels in our market profile, we use uh, Stadelmeyer's uh, market profile mm -hmm. at Dalton's. And I'll use that to see exactly what the order flow is like around a level. And people will say, should I just buy it? And I'm going, no, 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 you can't buy it until you hit it with some order flow, right? You know, it's like being in a street fight. You can't, you can't tell until you get that first punch. But you guys, that way I, I can see the difference how you, you look at something and then, you know, on average, it's going to do this. And so you're prepared to lose X amount. It's, it's an interesting way of looking at the completely two different systems. It's... Uh, Right. I mean, it's really. I, I can. I can see that there would be an advantage if I if I could really watch every mm -hmm. trading setup I have, you know, intraday and 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 find that really fine tune the entry levels. Um, but I don't. I don't want. It's kind of a lifestyle choice, really. I don't want to. That's sit true and, too. Sit That's there true. And stare at the screen. <laughs> and exactly. plus, I you know I typically have maybe a hundred plus setups every day so i don't think oh I my goodness okay yeah that's hard to <laughs> take in that many <laughs> yeah it's sort of it's sort of like a shotgun approach you might say just, interesting uh, you know i think you know some of them some of them will end up being really good and hopefully most of the rest will just cancel each other out i, th I think the appeal to being systematic to me and now meanwhile i'm part both right like i'm my i i, I back test you know, I, I program parameters, but I execute myself and, and I, I use my eyes, um, you know, somewhat, but I am leaning a little bit more mm -hmm. towards being systematic. And, and Marston, I think the appeal to me, and you can, you know, you can tell me what your thoughts are, is that it, it almost takes away some of like the psychological weaknesses that we have as human beings, um, or just the randomness in the market that you can be fooled by with your eyes. Uh, I think that's the appeal to me. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, I, I, I really, I don't know. Maybe there are some out there, but I've never heard of a discretionary trader who's just like purely ad hoc, purely intuitive. You know, so yeah. you've got to have some kind of rule set. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe your rules are are too fuzzy to be programmable as code, and then you know they, it involves some subject subjective, uh, you know, visual judgment. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, there's some kind of rules or method. Now, I've I've also found from sometimes a discretionary trader has said, oh, can you test this for me? And um, usually the method they think they're using isn't actually profitable if you test it, mm, but, right. yeah. but that's, but that's fine. I mean, that I, I, I used to think, oh, that may, that means they're a fraud or something, but no, it, it, to me, it's like, it's a framework that helps you focus so that your intuition can kick in and do what it needs to do. Um, so Makes a lot of sense. For sure. Do yeah. you, Marcin, do you see this trend continuing uh, with discretionary having higher returns or do you think we could start seeing an age where systematic could start out producing discretionary traders? I don't, I, I don't know even how to, how to find the data on that really, but. Um, I, I guess where I, the question, yeah, sorry, Marcin, not to cut you off. I guess to, to like, I guess kind of give you some context where I'm coming from. Uh, you see a lot of games that humans cannot beat computers at uh, poker, chess, go, etc. The, right. the market is still something that human beings outproduce computers at. Uh, I find that like super fascinating. And I'm just uh, curious, does that trend continue or do we start seeing it catch up? It, it might catch up. I mean, if, you know, of course, the different, like if you, I know you're a former po poker player or maybe yeah. a current one, if you yeah. take uh, poker, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a more compact universe, right? I mean, there's a certain number of possible hands and, you know, you can kind of know the probability of any given situation, more or less. Yeah, yeah, it's all, uh, it's all game, yeah. You know, in, in, in the market, it's, a, it's such a larger universe, right? There's, there's so many different markets, so many stocks, derivatives, all these different traders. I mean, you're really trying to guess how 
how all these other people are behaving who you don't even, and you don't even have any information about it unless you're you're JJ and you're making a market but um, <laughs> that, um, then you can maybe maybe it becomes a little more probabilistic but it's, yeah, it's the, the best you, I mean, the systematic approach, you, you, you find, if you try to make, make too specific a rule, you, you find so few instances that you can't get valid stats about them. And so, so but, you know, general rules, you know, like, uh, like I use in my, my strategies that, that do produce, you know, 10,000 trades in a historical backtest or whatever, you can get, you can find that, okay, it has a positive expectancy over time. Uh, on average, it produces an equity curve that looks like this and a drawdown that looks like that. And, uh, but you still don't know for any given trade entry, you have no idea what the probability is. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean, like the uh, typical stats of a, of a strategy I trade might be, um, you know, let's say the, the expectancy per trade is a hundred bucks. And, and the average win is a thousand and the average loss is minus a thousand, right? I mean, just, just you know, mm -hmm. generally the expectancy will be like one tenth of the, the range of the average win and the average loss. And that's true of pretty much any strategy. Mm -hmm. So. Um, yeah, did you want to jump in, Jay? Or? No, 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 I'm just learning. I'm learning. I, okay. I love this because the, the quantitative side and, and the math side, um, I, I come from the, you know, complete, um, sort of like the hooligan street side where you just poke them in the <laughs> eye and hit the bid. So I, I love to learn because, um, you know, it, it, being open-minded in trading is really good. So I love learning from-, from Well, I actually had a, had a question to, to ask you in that regard. Um, you know, given that, so say I, I have strategies where I'm calculated some limit prices that I, where I want to, I, I want to enter, uh, let's say I want to buy if it, if it gets down to a certain price. Um, tomorrow. So, um, and, and let's say it's, it's a thinner stock. So maybe, maybe my size would be like 1% of the average volume of that stock. Mm -hmm. So should I, uh, for execution, is it better to show my size on that limit order or, or to uh, no. not show it? Never show size. We will pick you apart when you show size. Um, I, I've been experimenting with that, and on some thinner stocks like recent IPOs, it seems like there's people who are who really would like to have to find some liquidity, and once you put it there, they take it. That, but, it, but then it, on it, some it, other stocks, you find you know algos get a penny ahead of you all the time, and and then oh, yeah. gets to you. Yeah, there so, there we were never we were always taught never to show size in the old days. Right now with these algos, I guess because they can split up a size order so much and route it in so many different ways. Um, you know, in the old days, I would have to pick up two phones, my partner, and then the guy, we'd hit six phone lines at the same time, you know, now an algo can go and pick off, you know, 20 market makers in, you know, milliseconds, you know, it's right. the, the, that, that technology is fascinating, but yeah, definitely on the situation, I think the thinner stock and one that's um, a little bit more controlled, you probably would be better just, you know, um, walk softly and carry a big stick kind of thing, but don't show it. <laughs> right, right. You know, I've been been experimenting with different different ways to approach that. I mean, my, my goal is to get filled at my limit price. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that, that's, a, that's the other kind of difference on the systematic person like me. My, my goal isn't necessarily, I mean, of course I want the best fill I can get like anybody else, but, but I'm not trying to optimize in that moment. I'm, I'm content if, if I end up with an actual fill, which is what a future backtest will say I would have gotten. Got it. Okay. So you know, if I if I pick the limit price that I want to enter at, I'm fine to get filled at that price, and I just want to maximize the odds that I'll actually get filled if price touches that level. Oh, okay, that's fascinating. That's what I'm looking for. So that, so in that in that sense, that's where I found it, because I, I, I always had the same assumption as you expressed that you should never show your size. And I and I'm, I mean I'm not talking about I'm not like some mutual fund trying to put on gargantuan <laughs> positions. I mean I'm I'm talking about you know three thousand shares on something that usually trades three hundred thousand a day. Oh, that that shouldn't be a big you problem. Know. So so yeah. it's just a, it's just a fine tuning thing of of mm -hmm. uh, what what makes the odds of getting that limit order actually filled 
Uh, yes. Yeah, and and I assumed that I that that I should just keep it hidden. But then of course it always has to trade through it, or you'll. Or yeah. And whereas if I show it, someone will often take it, and sometimes I'll get I'll be the you know the extreme of the day. Oh, that's nice. The the what what I used to do, um, and this is the how the discretionary guys would do it, is you know if you're trading something and you want to see how it's trading or where the order flow is, you'd go and hit the bid with hundred shares and see how it prints, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, you know that that's why we're sort of like you know kind of like the 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 chef that's tasting the soup. Ah, too much salt, you know, needs a little pepper. You know, right. so yeah. And of course, I mean, I'm not your typical day trader who's who's sitting there mm -hmm. looking at level two and and knows all the different market makers and so on. I mean, I my my decision tree is like, what kind of order should I send to IB smart smart routing? Got it. <laughs> that's that's the level I'm at here. That's cool. So yeah. now I'm just sending regular limit orders, but yeah, you know, in advance, so it's, mm -hmm. it's sitting there when price gets near. So, uh, Marston, something I, I think about um, and when, when backtesting is how do you know that a sample size is sufficient uh, for a certain strategy that you feel comfortable in implementing uh, the backtested strategy? It's, uh, there's no way to really know, but it's kind of a feel thing. But I, I tend to want to see maybe about a thousand trades in the backtest. Okay, a thousand uh, trades. That that's kind of that's a rough rough number. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's strategies that have. There's a danger in in backtesting, especially if you get into really short term strategies, where you'll you'll find uh, that you can find things with huge trade counts and tiny expectancies that have like astronomical sharp ratios and really smooth equity curves. But can you actually get those fills in? Uh, you know, it's a typical sort of mean reversion strategy where you just, you buy on a dip and sell at the end of that same day. But a lot of people use that sort of strategy in the systematic world. And um, and you you can uh, fine tune those to have a very high trade count. Um, you know, so you're, you're buying like a hundred different symbols every day. And, uh, you know, like just take anything that dips by half an ATR. Oh, okay. something like that and then um but but if you if you go and analyze the trades in that back test you'll see that all of the profitability from the strategy comes from the subset of trades where your limit order happened to be really near the low of the day um so you're you're counting on getting filled on all those or else the thing isn't going to work so you I, I tend to look for a balance where you know i want a high enough trade count that i can believe that that there's some structural edge there, but also a high enough expectancy. So I can believe that I'll actually get filled on them and be able to capture it, you know, even with a little slippage. Right, right. Yeah. And, that, and that, that's the thing, right, with backtesting is that sometimes the results can be misleading um, in certain yeah. areas. And uh, it, it's interesting, too, because we've had the guy um, on our podcast, it was a while back. And it's funny, he, he always talks about this. He says that win rate doesn't matter. And through his experience that he found some of the best strategies uh, to have low win rates. Um, but obviously the, the, you know, like the profit factor, et cetera, like is, is really high. Uh, have you found the same things or do you prefer different strategies? Well, I use a mix. I mean, typically uh, a meaner version type of strategy will have a higher uh, winning percentage and, and the, um, but the average win will be no larger than the average loss, maybe smaller, and a trend-following kind of strategy will be the opposite. Right. Um, so, and I actually I use a mix. Uh, I typically, I mean, a, a nice mean reversion strategy will have about a sixty percent win rate, and the win average win and average loss will be maybe similar. And a and a good trend-following strategy might have a forty percent win rate with the average win like twice the average loss. And if you work out those stats, they both are, are about the same expectancy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, and what what really differentiates those two styles is, um, in my definition anyway, is, is basically how you enter and how you exit. I mean, to me, mean reversion is you're you're entering against price direction and exiting with price direction, and trend following is the exact opposite. The trend mm -hmm. following people, you know, enter on a breakout and then sell on a trailing stop. Yeah. Right. 
a, a key factor for your systems early in your career uh, was unusual volume. Uh, can you define like what type of unusual volume that you were looking at? Yeah, that, I mean, that was kind of the, 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 the idea that O'Neill and Investors Business Daily put forward. You know, he, they, they would publish that table every day of mm-hmm. ranking the stocks by, by unusual volume, which is just, you know, yesterday's volume divided by the average volume. So, so, so yeah, back then I was, I would look for, I think at least twice the average volume. So, and that's, that worked especially well before, um, I think it was sometime around 2005 when the mutual funds figured out that they didn't have to put on these huge block trades and could, could use algos themselves. Uh, But before that, um, unusual volume, yeah, you could basically just buy any breakout with unusual volume, and it was probably a fund buying thing, and, and or several funds, and and uh, it would take them a couple of days to finish. So you could, you know, be like the little pilot fish that. Right. Mm-hmm. That. I mean, it was exactly. so it was ridiculously easy to use those strategies in the late '90s and early 2000s, but they gradually stopped working. I mean, I, I went through a, a process where I had to keep getting earlier. I, I, I think Jack talks about this in the book. Uh, of, you know, when I first started out, I would pick my my trades after the close and enter the orders for the next open, and then um, um, okay. figured out that and that that it would work better if I could get in right before the close, so that I could catch the people who mm-hmm. were doing what I used to do. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, and then, but then that stopped working in uh, sometime around 05. Um, and that's when I finally got uh, intraday data and started, um, you know, monitoring all my candidates throughout the day and and seeing how much volume there was in the morning and projecting whether it would it would be twice average at the close and then getting in earlier, and then that worked really well for the next few years. It's interesting and, that you say 05 because that's when Reg Show went into effect, uh, SHO, that changed the order flow a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that cool. probably Sorry. was related to, to the fact that, Definitely. That, that my old systems broke right around then. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Marston, yeah. So you, you, you spoke as you progressed through your career, uh, you went into like pro- projecting the volume. Are you able to like share with us how you went about doing that? Or is that kind of revealing too much of your system? Oh, no, I don't even use those strategies. Don't even okay. work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, um, yeah, I was using, I, I got a, a data field feed called uh, Encore, Nanex Encore, which is a really good like whole market tick data. Um, at the time it was 400 a month. Now it's like 1500 a month because they, because the exchanges raised their, their prices for, for live data. So I can't afford it anymore, but I don't need it now. Anyway, I just use daily bars, okay. but, uh, but anyway, um, so yeah, what I, did is I measured by basically you take one minute bars and then you can you can measure you know, on average for each minute of the market day how much of the daily volume has occurred by that by the end of that minute and so you can plot a kind of a curve so I, I ended up with a table of you know for each minute expect this percent of the daily volume to occur and of course it's a it's you know, it goes like that, right? You got a big chunk near the open and then it flattens out midday and then it, you get a spike near the close. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for any given minute, I, I could just take the multiple for that minute and then how much volume had occurred so far and estimate how much would occur by the close. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, interesting. And then compare that to the previous 20 day average volume or the 10 day average or whatever you want to use. and. Um, that that would determine whether it was unusual. Yeah. And something you uh, emphasized in the book, uh, and it's a tough, it's like a bouncing act, I feel like, right, is uh, over-optimizing your system, right? Because we want, we want to shoot for that, like, what's the optimal strategy? What is this here and there? But you can go too far, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you just speak to that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it, that problem is more acute if you're if you're building a system for a single market like you know futures traders will 
or many futures traders will just pick one thing like you know the ES or the, or whatever and and uh, and find a strategy for that one market. And then you got to really be careful of to not over optimize and use all sorts of techniques like walk forward and in sample out of sample and so on. Um, and I I think I, I had an intuition that that was a problem right right away when I got into backtesting and mm -hmm. and my emphasis from the beginning was on uh, you know portfolio level approach instead. So I wanted basically I was trying to model a process where I um, scan the whole stock market every day for for trades and take a fairly small number with using a different set of symbols every day. And uh, and to, to this day, that's still my approach. I mean, any any given symbol, I, I might trade it two or three times a year. And I'll probably probably trade three or 400 different stocks during the course of any one year. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's just whatever ones come up on a daily scan for the for the signal that I that I'm that I'm looking for. Um, so it's harder to over optimize, but it's still possible. I mean, it, you know, when you backtest, you you know, there's, there's, I don't know, a trillion possible trades that, are, that could occur on any given day in the market, but, or maybe it's a hundred trillion. I don't know what the number is, whatever. There's some astronomical number of trades that could occur. And, and, and backtesting is really just a process of filtering that down to some subset that that you would theory, theoretically have taken, right? And you know you can keep filtering and filtering and filtering until you you only take the winning trades every day if you if you if you let yourself add enough parameters. Yeah. So you know you just have to be aware of that risk and and decide not to do it. Um, yeah. You know, if you find yourself wanting to remove the most recent drawdown from your equity curve by putting in an ex a new rule. Yeah, uh, that's probably over optimizing. Um, and I used to do that. I, I mean, the funny thing is, and I, I, I didn't know anything for much with like at least the first 10 years I was doing this. I, I just wrote my own software and used it. And I didn't read any books about it. Uh, so I was just kind of inventing it as I went along and, and doing it in, in, fairly stupidly. I mean, according to any book you read about how, how to develop systems and do backtesting, but I don't know, somehow it worked well enough. Um, but now I'm less inclined to add lots of more rules to systems. And I'd rather add another strategy uh, that, that's not correlated with the ones I have. Right, right, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think the, the part you mentioned with like the drawdowns, that's probably when people start probably going too uh, crazy. Like, okay, let me add this. How do I remove it? When sometimes just the ebb and flow you know, without, yeah. just out of the way things go. Um, it's inevitable. I, I, I mean, nobody, yeah. you, you, you go back and retest things when you're in a drawdown. Everybody does that. You yeah. know, when, when you're hitting new equity highs, why would you change your rule? Although yeah. I do sometimes. I mean, if I think of something that makes more sense to me or, um, or find a way to simplify a strategy, I might put that change in, even if it's working great at that moment. Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I think a common theme in modeling or back testing uh, is that keeping it simpler uh, is better. And, uh, you know, shout out to Ed Thorpe. That was like something he really like emphasized in his book. And come on, Ed, come on the podcast too. We're trying to get him on here. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> shout out to Ed Thorpe. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's one thing he that, like, he really emphasized is that like, no, like his, I guess his like genius, quote unquote genius is that he could like simplify things and that's something you also referenced as well in your book uh but this is a hard concept for people to grasp huh yeah yeah it is you know it's it's tempting at least at first to to just do whatever it takes to make the equity curve look better um but yeah I, you know and you know i used to if i had a parameter uh you know that uh, like a moving average length i would do every single uh you know like from from 20 to 200 step one, <laughs> try them all or whatever, or, or you know, a multiplier. You're like what, uh, how many ATRs away from the moving average do you want to put a limit order? You know, let's optimize that to two decimal places. Um, yeah, so, so don't do that. I mean, I, over time I developed a bias for round numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe I'll test one ATR and half an ATR and one and a half. 
Yeah. And if, if there are better values between those, I don't care. Um, yeah, for sure. In the, in the book, you referenced uh, biotech stocks a few times, uh, either, you know, not back testing well for you, not having a good performance, uh, trading them well. Well, what is it about the biotechs that doesn't fit into your models? Well, I, I always included them uh, for a long time, but then in, um, so in 2013, I had my first losing year and um, which was basically because the short side, as I said before, I was trading, uh, you know, buying breakouts, shorting breakdowns. So it was kind of short-term trend following approach. And around 2013 is when the style known as BTFD really became very popular. And um, that, uh, that which basically is taking the other side of my short strategy. Because my, my short strategy was, you know, the stock was near a local high and then suddenly had a big drop, like 10%. And, and, uh, and then I would short it. And, and that used to, I mean, those big, like a 10% drop from near a local high would always have several days of follow through until 2013. I mean, not always, I mean, nothing works always, but you know, more often than not, so the strategy had a positive expectancy. So, um, but starting 20, 2013 or late 2012, um, it just didn't work and it really hasn't worked since. You know, that, that's now a prime buy signal. Uh, so, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of clued me into, I was maybe vaguely aware of the, the concept of mean reversion, but had never really explored it. So I started exploring it and I, I added, I, um, 2014, I divided my, my account in two and traded half of it with my existing strategies and the other half with a long short mean reversion pair that I had developed. Um, and the mean reversion pair did, did great. You know, it, it had a 40% year, which, which meant 20% to me and, they were, and my old two were flat. So then in 2015, I said, oh, I'm gonna just dump the old two which, and put everything in mean reversion maybe even add a little leverage because I mean these things have an incredible smooth equity curve mm -hmm. uh, and then I ended up having a 45 percent drawdown because and part of it was from from biotech there was a time when um, what was it yeah 2015 right I think it was it was like presidential primary season and uh, there was some point where it looked like Hillary was doing well and then she tweeted something about uh, going after the pharmaceuticals and all the all those stocks tanked and, and kept dropping for days and days in a row. So the you know the usual rules of mean reversion where something rebounds typically after about three days of falling uh, did not apply to those. And and I found uh, that to be true um, you know in in general that 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 uh, the biotech stocks tend to trend a little more than than a lot of other sectors. And then, of course, on the short side, it, they're just perilous because you never know when the next FDA results announcement is going to come out and the thing's going to quadruple overnight or whatever. Exactly. So, yeah, you don't want to be short those things overnight. I will Jeez. short. I, I now I trade um, an overnight mean reversion strategy pair and an intraday mean reversion strategy pair, and I'll I'll include biotech in the intraday, but I won't short them overnight. Yeah. Excuse me. Can I just ask? Just Ray, Ray will know this. Is there a way for you guys to put in supply somehow with that strategy so you guys don't get roasted? Like, what you, know, does that like mean? you know, like putting in, uh, you know, so you, you're not shorting something where there's no supply, like say that 10% drop nowadays because they warehouse so much stock. Nobody actually ever sells stock because we don't need to because interest rates are low. So nobody sells to cash out. So they just keep taking prices higher and putting away stock. And you see that in GME was one of those cases. And a lot of these cases where uh, the floats are locked, is there any way that you're like, cause I know Ray does stuff with short scans and stuff like that with float percent short of float. Any way to use that to keep you out of that kind of a trade? And I was gonna ask you that question today, actually. Cause uh, I mean, short, you know, short interest data is only published twice a month true but i can um, uh, if you ever need I mean, any I, I just look at a stock and i can look at the structure of the company because i've taken a couple of hundred of them public uh -huh. so when i take a company public i build a short position into it yeah 
right? Because it helps you keep the price up so you don't have to work as hard to bring buying into it. Yeah, I, I, right. I remember when my company went public in 1996, they, how they supported the price for yeah. a quarter. Yeah, exactly, right? Just we hold it up so we can sell it, right? right. You know, because it's a market, you know? Um, right. You know, it's just like a fish market, except <laughs> here we're selling paper. But well, I'm just yeah, curious. In, in the last few months, when, when my short strategy has started to struggle again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely interested in that. I mean, so far, the, the only thing I've found is what I mentioned earlier with the looking at the borrow rates and the margin rates that IB has. Uh, some of these deals, if you just look at the structure, you can tell, you'll see like 125% um, of the float is short or some crazy thing like that. Then there's something that's immediately a red flag, right? Stay away. Yeah. Uh, because there's just no supply. Um, you know, because a lot of times these companies will talk to funders, the funders will pre-short the stock to get the price down for the offering. And then the company will walk away from it. And those people are short. Well, Usually they can bully it down. But when the street takes the stock, that's when you get caught. Well, that's why some of these things, Jay, I think, um, I mean, I keep in mind when I backtest them, right? Like, but like Marcelin said, a lot of these uh, statistics are fluid, right? They're changing the short flow to short interest institutionally held. But those are things I, I do put into the test to see if I can see something. Cool. But I think that's where you got to use some of your eyes sometimes, Jay, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, chart, use your eyes, you know what I'm saying, to see. Yeah. So there's some things that the numbers can't capture as well. I, I don't know. Would you, would you agree, Marston? Yeah. I mean, to you, I, I would love to be able to test that. I mean, I, I, I don't currently have a source of data even for, um, I mean, I, I, I have the current float. You can get the current float, current short interest. Oh yeah. But I can't get, uh, you know, point in time, historical float or point in time, historical short interest. So I can That's true. build a model of, uh, you know, what thresholds to use. Oh, okay. Which yeah. is what I would need to do because I can't see. <laughs> it's ah, hard for you to imagine, but I'm constrained by my refusal to make any judgment. Like I literally do not want to know the name of any stock I'm trading. I don't. Oh, that's it. good. I love. I it. love that part. I love that part. <laughs> right. It's I love like, it. It's so I, extreme. No, it's great. That's awesome. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. I, mean, I I know I have some positions on you know over this weekend, but I I couldn't tell you what they are. I have no idea. I could open IB and look, but it's like that's a real it, trader. That's a real trader right there, Jake. I love it. Definitely. Uh, we, we have a, we have a, um, a, a former uh, CBOE floor trader um, in our group of traders. <laughs> and, and that's what he, he has no idea what the, the, he's like, I don't give a shit what this company does. I don't know. Really <laughs> whatever. It don't matter. I just follow flow. I just follow yeah. flow. flow <laughs> yeah. Just go with the flow. Go with the flow. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I just, I want a set of rules that I can apply every day that, that will print money. That's basically what I'm yeah. looking for. Yeah. So, uh, Marcin, um, uh, you know, while we're on the topic of shorting and JJ, you know, I love shorting, um, <laughs> but, uh, Marcin, it's, uh, how are you been faring on the, on the short strategies as of late? It seems uh, a little difficult nowadays. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, no, the short side has been in a, in a drawdown since like, mid December. Uh, you know, I mean, I've had some winners, but, but on average, they, they just, they haven't worked. It's cause it seems, I don't know how much of it is the, uh, you know, Wall Street bets thing and or, or what, but but it, the market has shifted to this mode of, of you know, buy whatever's the most overbought. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> well, which is, which is exactly, you know, and that, and that wasn't the case. I mean, the, 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 the kind of, uh, you know, you can put in a measure of, you know, what's starting to be ridiculously overbought and, and then, you know, it goes up even more tomorrow, short it there. And, you know, on exactly. average, that has worked for the past 20 years. It didn't work. It, I mean, I, I've been aware all along that this strategy I, I run uh, did really badly in 1999 and early 2000. Mm. But I've, I've just assumed that, well, that, you know, that was unique. That's not going to happen again. Um, well, here's the thing. And here right? it is happening again. <laughs> but yeah. here's the thing. And the reason for that is because the industry changed from a commission-based model to an asset allocation model and an assets under management model. So the more assets they gather, they don't need to sell them. They don't need, they won't sell them. The more assets they gather, the higher the fees, right? That's how they're making their money. Mm. And so if you don't ever sell anything, how is there any supply to force the price down so you can short? It sounds like a dangerous game to me. I mean, it's like a Ponzi scheme eventually. Marston, uh, look, at, look at the daily volume of Apple compared to its float. 
less than 1% of the float of that stock trades. Yeah. That's scary. If one of those funds came out of 300 million shares of Apple, the stock would be two bucks. Right. Right. And that's why I think it's so ludicrous when people talk about, you know, how wealthy, uh, you know, Elon Musk is, et cetera. I mean, yeah, on paper, but yeah. Exactly. Man, but try and sell all that paper. Yeah. You have to create a market to sell that stock into. Right. Mm. Interesting. Wow. I never, I never thought of that. Good point, Jay. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, I, I mean, that, that's the, the burning question for me right now is, is, uh, you know, do I keep running these strategies every day that are, that are losing money or, I mean, is, are they permanently broken? Is it, uh, I mean, it you know, in, in the short, it, I tend to, they have little, little drawdown climax days and I'm thinking, okay, this is it. I better shut it off. And then, and then I always get a really nice rebound the next day. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's true. Yeah, exactly. But, right. It's yeah. just the certain stocks that you just are, are just like, you just want to stay away from. Right. <laughs> like, you know, those things that like there's something fishy. If you if even if your gut feeling says there's something fishy about it, when you re, when you look at the structure, just walk away from it. Right. It's uh, and you know, there's a pick another banana to peel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I need to, to start. I mean, I'm starting to get a little little feel. I did you know save myself some money by, by noticing the, the, the Robin Hood. Uh, Wall Street bets trend and and taking putting a few of those on my exclude list, uh, yeah. yeah. Eventually, but uh, you know I got burned by like BBBY, but like XONE, what's up with that? That thing just goes straight up every day with with no pullbacks. Yeah, there's there's no supply. It's a 3D printer company or something. Oh, yeah. Well, those are always good. Those always bring lots of retail. 3D printer companies and also treasure hunter deals are wonderful for retail buyers. There's so, there's so <laughs> many things that are just like vertical. And like Marcy, it's the same oh, thing. Like my, I've been, I've been really choosy with my shorts though. Like I'm a little different. Like I don't take every trade that shows up on my system and like mm -hmm. I'll, I'll scan it with my eyes. Let me see where's this company from. Like these Chinese companies I've been trying to short just don't go down uh, and Jay, they're probably scams, right? Like, you know, you, you look at these things. Well, well yes, yeah, so let's say let's, let's say they're massaged. Um, they're yeah, I mean, it's insane. Now. I mean, these guys are just selling paper. You know, so right. many of these companies, the primary business model is selling worthless paper into into retail buying and, and U.S. buying. It's, yeah, I first came across that in that big drawdown I had in 2015. There, there were two, the biotech thing I described before was actually the second leg. The first leg, it was June 2015 when I, I kept shorting Chinese names and they kept going up. Uh, it's incredible. That was they, the first half of that. Yeah, they don't let these things go down or they hold them up yeah. for a long, long, long time. It's insane. And uh, Marcin, a, 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 almost a counterintuitive point when I first started back testing, uh, and it's something that you speak to in the book as well, so it was good to see it, um, is that stops can actually be detrimental to your profitability if they're implemented incorrectly. Uh, can you just expand on that? Yeah, that and and that actually gets back to the discretionary versus systematic question as well, because it's um, you know you hear these rules for discretionary traders like cut your losses short and let your winners run, and and yet I've never seen a mechanical system that implements that and and does really well. I mean, but every good equity curve from a mechanical system has either no stops or wide stops. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a paradox. Um, but I mean, you know, if, if you, I mean, I, I actually don't use stops in any of my strategies, but at all uh, price, you know, price stops, like putting a stop order in the market. Um, you know, I have exit rules at, 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 at the close of, you know, if the price, like for a trend following type strategy, I might exit if it's closing at a three day low or something like that. Um, uh, but I, I, I found really early on um, that at close only stops really do better than live stops because you, you know, avoid the whipsaw and so on. But that, that's all with the assumption that you're creating a whole portfolio of symbols and never putting a huge amount of account in any one symbol. I mean, if you're, if you're a discretionary trader who wants to you know, fully margin up in Tesla or whatever, yeah, you better have a pretty tight stop. So it, so it depends. I mean, to, you know, to some extent, my, I mean, I, I've also always assumed that if I'm holding a position overnight, it could open at zero, uh, or or if it's a short, it could double or triple. So, um, you know, I never want to put more than 
like the most I'll put in any position is 10% of my account. And that's, that's very aggressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, and, you know, cause so that, so, uh, you know, typically it's 5%, you know, so, okay. I might, I might take a 5% loss, but I've, I've always looked more at like, to me, if, if you get a couple of trades that are two or 3% of your account uh, hit um, out of a thousand or 2000 trades in a year, that it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in what the drawdown profile is. Um, sure. Sure. It makes sense. So do, do, you, do you think, Marcy, you know, as we're like talking this out, do, do you think that the this cut winners short, let runners run is almost kind of like a uh, little BS euphorism that people say that's actually really not concrete and like just not mathematically sound? Or do you think? The, no, I don't think that. I think I think that actually is a is a very important concept for for a discretionary trader and for mm -hmm. a you know trend following kind of strategy. I mean that's what a trend following strategy does. It's it's just a question of what what type of approach you're trading, um, and, and and you know how you want to implement implement your stop. Yeah, I, I think in a, in a lot of the market wizards uh, in the book, uh, it seemed like a common theme. They were they were like, hey, if the trade doesn't work right away. Uh, just cut it, cut it out. And so I guess speaking to the intuitive yeah. factor you were talking about before, these guys are like picking entry points where the trade should be working right away. Um, and if not, they're getting right. out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I once um, took a set of trades from a this successful discretionary trader and uh, put them in my backtesting software. It, it actually, actually, my software uh, includes the ability to, um, to backtest from a, from a list of trades. So okay. it can be useful. You know, like a discretionary trader can take their trades and, um, you know, try imposing uh, different rules on them and how, how that could have helped. But anyway, yeah, I, I took a set of trades that were, you know, mostly had a nice uh, equity curve. And, uh, and this is a person who uses stops. And I tested different stop levels um, and found that, that widening the stop substantially made no difference because the entries were so good. Right, right. But because it, because this guy knew he was using tight stops, I think it adds a level of discipline. It's like you don't take the end. If you know you, you're forcing yourself to put a stop, you know, fairly nearby, you're not going to take an entry unless you think it's not going to hit it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense for sure. And yeah, and developing that discipline, Jay, right? Like that's so important. That, that's, that's tough. And that's the tough part of, of this type of trading is the yeah. discipline. Uh, coming from the side that we had no discipline so <laughs> yeah yeah uh a i guess another interesting thing i took away from your interview uh that you came across on your back testing is that you found that using a short momentum strategy that uses a mean reversion entry so what so what's a mean reversion entry like, like oh, so that yeah that's that's just one one of the that strategy is actually it's actually my least a good one, but it, it, oh. it kind of is there as a hedge. Uh, is it, it's really I, you know I, as I described, I used to use the, the the short my shorting strategy that looked for a big breakdown and then went short, uh, and that, that that doesn't work anymore. And so periodically I will revisit that, and and I found that if I take that basic concept of there was a really big breakdown, but then enter on a limit order if it bounces the next day. Um, and then and then hold it like a trend following short. Mm -hmm. That works sometimes. I mean, I actually that that strategy was my best strategy last March, uh, for example. Um, and it, it's been a couple times since then that it's done well. But it's it's kind of like a, an insurance policy almost. It, it's got, it's just flat or even loses a little bit most of the time. But then it but then it catches the uh, the big drops when they happen. So it's, it's useful for that. All right, awesome. Gotcha. Uh, so really, it would just a way to, to to take the old strategy I used to use and improve the entry. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I gather you you take hedging um, rather. Um, uh, it, it's an important concept, right? Because you know, I, I feel most systematic traders want to have systems. Well, we do, right? We want to be profitable no matter what the market does. Correctly. Right, so right. I don't use I don't use hedging in any sort of formal sense. Um, I mean, to me, hedging is like you've got an investment that's 
that's a long position that's always on and then maybe you you know you buy puts when the market looks iffy or something like like I don't do anything like that I've never um had this idea that I that I have to quote unquote have my money at work like I to, to me trading capital is just there so you can put on positions when the opportunities arise um so but I but I do like to be running a mix of different strategies uh like to, to me, there's kind of a, it's kind of now I think of a four points, a quad thing, which is, you know, long and short on one axis and momentum and mean reversion on the other axis. And mm -hmm. so you, you, you want to have each of those four checkboxes checked off among your strategies. And then you're pretty well covered in most market conditions. Yeah. And, and you just do it bottom up. You know, you take, you take positions as the signals occur. So you let you let the market say which which strategies have more investment at any given time, but uh, the problem with only trading mean reversion, which I had a you know that unfortunate ex experiment with in 2015, is that they, they actually don't hedge each other. You know, if you think of mean reversion long, you're only buying something when it's dropping, and short you're only shorting when it's rising. And so when the market starts to fall, you don't get any short signals; you just get long signals. And if it keeps falling, you're screwed. So um, that's where adding the other things in helps. Right, right. So, so instead, so because you were doing both mean reversion strategies, weren't hedging each other, then you went, if I remember correctly, long mean reversion and then short momentum does help. Do they, they right. hedge, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. Uh, long, like, um, you know, uh, since I, t I told you my short strategy, my mean reversion short strategy has been bleeding since mid December, but then my my long momentum strategy, which focuses on recent IPOs, has been hitting it out of the park. So, you know, the net result is positive. Yeah. Um, but of course, now I wish I'd just shut the short side down, but <laughs> what can yeah. you do? Easier, easier in hindsight. Easier in hindsight. Yeah. Uh, Marcy, one, one of your like parting uh, words uh, in the book, I, um, I liked. You said develop an appreciation for the randomness in the market. Totally. Can you just expand on that thought, what that means to you? Well, uh, I mean, one thing it means is that, I mean, so, so you're running a strategy that you backtested and it has thousands of trades in the backtest and you know it's going to make a thousand trades in a year. Um, so it really doesn't matter what today's position does. You know, it's just one of a thousand trades. Um, the... Uh, but, but also uh, and understanding that helps, I don't know, it helps with not getting too attached to any given concept. I mean, any, even, even at the system development level, like whether one version of a system is gonna do better than another version of a system in the future, you have no idea. There's no way you can even predict which one will do better. And it, it, it's kind of an acceptance of what you can't predict and what you, what you can't forecast. Um, I also specifically use randomness uh, in my back testing. You know, I'll, I'll randomize parameters. You know, I'll run, I'll run a thousand tests with, with, a, with a range of random values for a parameter and then look at the set of results and I'll, I'll assume, you know, at best I'll probably get whatever the median value from that set is as opposed to the very best one. Yeah, I like it. It's kind of like anti-optimizing. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes that makes total sense though. I re I really like that. That's yeah, unique, interesting. You have uh, Marcin, you have uh, software uh, for purchase for some of the listeners uh, who might be interested in this nerd stuff we've been talking. Uh, tell them a little bit about the uh, the software you got. <laughs> yeah, I have I, I have a uh, back testing software product which I call Real Test, which um, it, it it's just literally been. Well, it just kind of evolved for 20 years. And then in the last couple of years, I made a big push to um, bring it to a new level so that you know, other people could, could use it better. Um, and um, I, I, you know, of course, having uh, the, this book coming out is somewhat of a catalyst. Like I might as well take, take uh, advantage of that opportunity and <laughs> sell it. But yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have big plans to, you know, revenue from selling software is not going to be my main income. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It just, you know, it helps pay for the expenses of supporting it and everything. Uh, but yeah, it what's 
you know, it's a, it's a portfolio level backtester. And it also makes it really easy to, to uh, combine multiple strategies into a model. So you can, you know, everything I'm running, I can, I can run as one backtest and I can see the combined equity curve and all the equity curves of the strategies within it. And, um, uh, and I've got a, you know, a scripting syntax that makes it pretty easy. I've had quite a few people who really aren't programmers who've been able to, to figure it out and who, who had struggled with other backtesting products. Mm -hmm. so I think I found a good balance of um, power and ease of use, which is kind of always the goal with software development. Yeah, no, it is. Someone like myself, Marston, I am, I, like, I do these things, but I'm not a programmer myself, so I need uh, software like that um, <laughs> right. so, so I can have access to this stuff. So, yeah. It's yeah. And I also include a lot of, uh, you know, example strategies so that you know, people, like, if you want to do a meaner version system, you can find one that's there in my examples folder, and then you can start with that and tweak it. And, nice. and, and you know, there quite a few of them are, are currently profitable, so. Yeah, I'm not nice. just giving people abstract examples that are that are useless. Yeah, for um, sure. Comes with a template. No, that's awesome. Good stuff. Awesome. So JJ, before we uh, wrap this episode up, do you got any uh, any questions for our boy? No, oh, I've just really, really. I, I, it was a great learning experience. It's uh, it's quite lovely to sit and, and and learn about you know the areas of the market that you don't know about, and this you know is the first time that we've had a trader on the on the show who could play the Sibelius, which is you know <laughs> extremely you know that 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 is one of the coolest things. So it was, it was lovely. Having it's a that. wonderful concerto. I don't think I could play it today. I yeah, kind of. Uh, in this intense software development phase I've been going through, I've been neglecting the violin, but I will come back to it soon. Good stuff. For all of those who tried and failed, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to trade with a professional and fun group of traders, we trade over at microefutures.com. Marston, tell the listeners where they can find you. Uh, anything else you want them to know? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Mars10P, that's M-A-R-S-1-0-P. And that'll help people remember how to spell my name. And I'm uh, mhptrading.com is my website where you can see my software. Yes, yes. Go follow, him on, go follow him on Twitter. Go check out the software. So for Marston Parker, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's a girl of the house street. Be easy. Thanks, Marston. Thank you. Thank you.